The People's Republic of China is the world's largest country by population. At some point in the next decade or so, it will likely become the world's largest economy by GDP. It already has the world's largest active military by manpower. Accordingly, for everybody else, China presents the world's largest diplomatic headache. Under the leadership of Xi Jinping, a president determined to write himself significantly into his nation's long history, China has embarked on a program of global outreach astonishing in its scope. If China cannot be constrained, much less contained, how can other countries, most obviously the United States, avoid conflict with it? In this special edition of The Foreign Desk, we're joined by a former politician who brings more direct insider expertise to bear on these challenges than most. Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister of Australia from 2007 to 2010 and again for a brief period in 2013. In between, he served as Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs from 2010 to 2012 and before entering politics was a diplomat with a particular interest in China, working at Australia's embassy in Beijing in the mid-1980s. He is now president of the New York City-based Asia Society, and his new book is The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping's China. How can the United States compete with China without fighting with China? What are the likeliest flashpoints, and how can they be safely negotiated? And what does one discuss with the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party? This is The Foreign Desk. Taiwan, within the internal ideology slash theology of the Chinese Communist Party, is the incomplete element of the Chinese Revolution of 1949. If you like, it's the bit that Mao didn't get done. So therefore, to occupy a parallel space to uh, Mao Zedong and the Chinese secular pantheon, retaking Taiwan from a personal political career point of view would be the absolute apogee within their system. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Kevin Rudd, welcome back to the programme. And first of all, aside from your book, The Avoidable War, we've been given another news hook for this week's show by the remarks of the President of the United States. Joe Biden talking about Taiwan this week was a bit of an advance on the deliberate muddiness of the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. He's gone a bit beyond non-peaceful means being a matter of grave concern to the United States, hasn't he? I think the president's formulation is consistent with two or three others he's delivered since taking office about 18 months ago. And I think it's of no particular surprise to those in Beijing and those elsewhere in the Indo-Pacific region that he has indicated that the United States would respond to um, an attack on Taiwan. But I think what is left unclear and deliberately so is the nature of the US response. And when we look carefully at the possible scenarios over Taiwan, there are many, not just a massive amphibious assault. There can be all sorts of salami slicing possibilities, including military attacks on Taiwan's offshore islands, trade blockades, as well as cyber attacks on Taiwanese domestic economic and political infrastructure. So I think on those questions, strategic ambiguity remains. The traditional American doctrinal response to the Taiwan question but on the primary question, which is would the United States act, then he's made clear that it would. 
Well, we will come back to that potential scenario and other potential scenarios a bit further down the track in this discussion. Before we get into that, though, and even before we begin to approach the topics raised in your book, I did want to ask, because I've always been kind of curious about it, is at what point and for what reason your fascination with China began? Because this goes back a very, very long way for you. Yeah, as a kid, I became fascinated in China. I think it's a product of uh, having grown up in uh, Australian animal husbandry as my alternative career path and having grown up in a farm in rural Queensland where my father once said that I had two career options in the future. One was beef and one was dairy. I suddenly developed a bookish interest in China and then would disappear to the furthest reaches of our property reading about Chinese architecture as a kid. Then went to university, studied Chinese, joined the Foreign Service. I wasn't quite sure what a Foreign Service was, actually. (laughs) Ended up in the embassy in Beijing, and one thing led to another. So it's been part and parcel of my own formation since about the age of 18. The book, The Avoidable War, is it's kind of jointly addressed to China and the United States. You describe it as a letter to two friends, and they are two countries that you know very well. You have lived in both. Do you get the sense that China and the United States and perhaps the wider West actually understand each other any better than they did at around the time of your first posting to China in the mid-1980s? The classical answer to your question is yes and no. (laughs) Yes, in the sense that after a period of 40 years of engagement, the US and China have developed high levels of familiarity with each other's strengths, weaknesses, and mindsets. But at a second level, and particularly on the question of mindsets, there is still what I describe in the book as a high degree of mutually assured non-comprehension, and namely an inability of an authoritarian state like China to fully comprehend the vagaries and the wonders of the American democracy on the one hand, and a certain resolve in American democratic politics to stand up for another democracy in different ways, as we've seen in the case of Ukraine. And in the reverse direction, I'm not sure Americans fully understand the extent to which the mindset of the Chinese Communist Party is not uniform, that there are divergent views within the system still. But yes, they are systemically more familiar with each other, but still a level of, um, shall we say, mirror imaging strategically in terms of what the other side actually thinks. Well, the book discusses our current period, the 2020s, as the decade of living dangerously, as you put it. Is that the competition, the friction, the abrasiveness, whatever you will, between the United States and China... Is it ever something which can be definitively resolved or is it something that's just going to have to be perpetually managed? I'm very much into the latter category. We could all wish to have a very tidy, neat Cartesian mind and reach a point of perfect resolution. But the theological luxuries of Aquinas and the intellectual luxuries of Descartes are one thing. The real world of the untidiness of diplomacy and international power is something else. I think the key thing we can do for this decade ahead, when there are so many things which could trigger crisis, escalation, conflict and war, is to devise mechanisms which, as I say in the book, provide a mutually agreed framework for managed strategic competition so that you don't eliminate the risk of war, but you reduce that risk at least by 
the poor management of a crisis should it arise. And that's very much the animating principle behind the book. The subtitle of the book refers, I think, quite significantly to the United States and to Xi Jinping's China. Do you think he is the fixed point that all thinking around about China has to be oriented towards? I mean, you do point out that his family do tend toward the long-lived, that he's likely to be with us for a while. So if we have that, I guess, bastion of predictability, does that help the West figure out how to deal with China? I think it's an important factor in our analysis. Xi Jinping is about to conclude his second term in office and assuming he is reappointed to a third term at the 20th Party Congress in November this year, my own analysis is that he's likely to remain in office through until about 2035, by which point he would be a sprightly 82 years old, almost young enough to run for president of the United States. (laughs) So under those circumstances, it's important, therefore, that we wrap our mind around Xi Jinping's worldview, not just that of the Chinese Communist Party. And for those reasons, it's important for us to understand that Xi Jinping is doing essentially three big things in China. He's taken politics decisively to the left with more control of the party over people's lives and with greater personal control by him over the party rather than through collective leadership. Secondly, he's taken the center of gravity of Chinese economic policy also to the left with a renewed emphasis on the power of the state, the party, state and enterprises and the rest over the private sector. And then thirdly, he's taken Chinese nationalism to the right, underpinning a new and more assertive Chinese foreign security policy. If I was trying to summarize the Xi Jinping worldview as I've observed it, over the last near decade, those would be its essential points. You write in the book that your analysis of what he wants is, and I quote, an enduring legacy in national and party history superior to that of Deng Xiaoping and at least equal to Mao Zedong, which is is quite the ask. In practice, what would that mean? Well, this is where the Taiwan uh, question looms large. Taiwan, within the internal ideology slash theology of the Chinese Communist Party, is the incomplete element of the Chinese Revolution of 1949. If you like, it's the bit that Mao didn't get done. Mm. So therefore, to occupy a parallel space to uh, Mao Zedong and the Chinese secular pantheon, retaking Taiwan from a personal political career point of view, would be the absolute apogee within their system. I think the second thing is this. Xi Jinping, like Mao Zedong, also understand the centrality of Marxist-Leninist ideology in cohering the Chinese Communist Party into a long-term Leninist force in Chinese politics and the economy and in the world. And what Xi Jinping, like Mao, has done is to re-energize Marxist-Leninist ideology in a manner in which it stands in stark contrast to the sliding status of ideology under Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. I think these are two standout features of what Xi Jinping would see as his ideological and national legacy. You've met Xi Jinping, and I'm I'm always interested. We've talked about this before in the in the degree to which personal relationships between leaders can shape historical events. What are you able to talk about with him beyond matters of of statecraft? Certainly, my own discussions with Xi Jinping were a long uh, series of conversations, most of which are in Chinese, 
about um, Chinese history, Chinese modern history, the role of the Chinese Communist Party, in fact, the role of his father, who was also a Politburo member under Deng Xiaoping and prior to that, a military commander under Mao in the pre-49 period. And so what I find with Xi Jinping is an ability to range broadly over his own country's vast history, but also with a um, reasonable degree of understanding of world history as well. He strikes me as a person who is widely read, if not formally educated, mm. in the sense that his generation's higher education was deeply disrupted by the Cultural Revolution. Well, let's talk a bit about Taiwan, because that is the most likely looking flashpoint between China and the United States and the wider West. Is the current status or the status that Taiwan has enjoyed roughly since 1949, this kind of eternal ambiguity, is that really viable? Is it your sense that there is inevitably going to be an attempt by China to resolve this, whatever deterrents are erected to stop them from doing it? No, there's nothing inevitable in world politics at all, including on this question. I, for one, certainly believe in the power and importance of political agency by state leaders and individual nation states. So the key question here is, Xi Jinping, ideologically and politically, is resolved to bring Taiwan back into, as they would say, the motherland's warm embrace, unquote. I'm not sure the Taiwanese would see it in those same terms. But secondly, he will still be attendant on the advice of the Central Military Commission about the doability of, uh, for example, an amphibious invasion. And so the real operational question for this decade of living dangerously is, can, as it were, the peace be preserved at one level, during which the United States and the Taiwanese, and to a lesser extent, US allies in Asia, can reestablish the viability of individual and collective deterrence in the minds of the Chinese military command to cause them to advise Xi Jinping at the appointed hour, comrade, we'd love to be able to say yes, but in fact, it's too damned risky to do it. And our Russian colleagues found the same in a land-based operation not so long ago called the Ukraine. And this is, would be the largest amphibious operation mm. since D-Day. So therefore, there's nothing inevitable about this. Does China want to do it? Yes. but the Chinese are not reckless risk takers, and Xi Jinping included. He is a risk taker, uh, more so than his predecessors, but not recklessly so. So the real variable here is the extent to which deterrence, military and economic, can be effectively built. I mean, you're quite right to observe, of course, that the Taiwanese passed the point, I think, of seeing this quite the same way that mainland China or certainly the Chinese Communist Party does. There's a, a lovely description in the book of Taiwan as rambunctiously democratic, which was certainly my observation of it in the time that I've spent there. But do you think the West has any clear idea of what China would consider a price worth paying to take Taiwan. China, as you say, obviously understands that it would be risky, it would be dangerous, and there would be all sorts of costs. But what kind of bill would they be willing to run up? I don't think we could do mathematics around that. But if there was going to be massive loss of life by the Chinese military, I don't think that of itself is a material factor in preventing China from taking this action. Remember, it's a Marxist-Leninist party, which has a different view of human life than perhaps is the case in other countries, when in pursuit of ideological, revolutionary or nationalist objective. I think the key question will always be, 
can the Chinese military provide a robust guarantee that notwithstanding significant losses that they would militarily prevail? And as I said, the key variables there when it's all stripped back are as follows. What is the United States' ability to militarily interdict an invasion force in the Taiwan Straits and interdict with sufficient degradation of those forces to impede the impact of the uh, amphibious assault? And secondly, on the island of Taiwan itself, the extent to which the Taiwanese armed forces acquire sufficient capability and different types of capabilities to conduct the sort of effective asymmetric warfare that we've seen by the Ukrainians against the Russian invasion. And the degradation, therefore, of a depleted invasion force on shore by Taiwanese resistance would, I think, be the second element in the Chinese military calculus. While both China and the West manoeuvre around Taiwan and the possibilities of what may transpire over Taiwan, what other steps do you think can be taken, mainly, I guess, by the West, if, you know, if you're thinking of this as a Western politician, to actually improve relations with China? I'm, I'm wondering about this in the context of, for example, the recent federal election campaign back in our mutual homeland of Australia, where there was a certain of, amount of anti-Chinese jingoism raised by one party in particular, when that stuff crops up in the domestic politics of Western countries, and it does in Australia, in the United Kingdom, and certainly in the United States, does China take any of that seriously? Or do they just zone that out as it's just domestic politics, it's not really anything we have to take personally? I think, first of all, it's important to characterise these debates as those occurring within the democratic world rather than the Western world, because these debates are occurring within the Philippines democracy, the Japanese democracy, the Korean democracy, the Indonesian democracy, and the Indian democracy. So um, often our friends in Europe seem to assume that democracy equals West when it doesn't. A fair point. That's right. But it's important for our European friends in particular and our American friends to reflect on that. Because in this hemisphere, the Eastern Hemisphere, the repeated use of the term West actually has a certain neo-colonial overtone, which I don't think folks in London, Berlin, Paris and Brussels are necessarily mindful of how it's read in our part of the world. And given that we're just a bunch of Australian criminals, we don't really count <laughs> within that frame. I think within the democracies, therefore, do the Chinese pay attention to the debates? not in terms of the language so much. They've become somewhat inured to that as a Chinese Communist Party. But the bottom line is they do seek to identify where significant and substantive policy change is occurring and reach a deduction that through the midst of the democratic debate, where does the actual landing point lie on China policy and China strategy in these various democracies? And certainly you've pointed to the fact that in the Australian political debates associated with the election held only last Saturday. The leader of the Labour Party is the Chinese government's pick at this election. That China was kicked around enormously by the Conservative Party because it's seen as testosterone-inducing, hairy chest-enhancing, good domestic political cannon fodder to demonstrate that these Conservatives are the only sensible folks for handling a robust national security challenge such as China's rise. As opposed to the other side of politics, uh, which is the party I come from, which has long identified China as a challenge, but mm. has sought to develop a series of substantive strategies for dealing with it outside of the volume switch on the megaphone. 
I think that's the sort of thing which the Chinese would monitor as well. And therefore, what they will be particularly concerned about is where the incoming Australia Labor government actually lands on the China question in reality, as opposed to the brouhaha of an election campaign. Well, does China then take criticism of China any more seriously when it's not part of, as you put it, the brouhaha of a domestic election, but actually directed at them by Western and or democratic countries? I mean, we are now at the point at which the last two US secretaries of state have accused China of genocide, which is about the worst thing one country can accuse any other of. Political language does matter in the Chinese system. And there's a reason why China does pay attention to political language used under those circumstances. It's because the Chinese Communist Party's principal objective in life is to remain in power Mm. domestically. And that in part hangs on its own domestic political legitimacy, not just the control of political power through the barrel of a gun, as Mao Zedong once famously said, but also through its ability to grow the economy increase people's living standards and to gain greater and greater international respectability, acceptance and recognition. So this is where language does become important and why China becomes deeply sensitive to combined statements, for example, through the various institutions of the international community about aspects of its policy performance, like on human rights, because it automatically translates back into a domestic political legitimacy equation. But that said, is there actually any constructive point from the democratic world at the moment of making those points to China or making those criticisms to China? Because it's not going to alter China's behaviour, is it? That's an open question. China, in its declaratory policy, places enormous store by the United Nations system and both by its role in the UN Security Council its role in the UN General Assembly, its role in UN specialised agencies, and in particular, for example, where it feels itself to be most vulnerable in the Human Rights Council in Geneva. And there is a key question, therefore. China repeatedly domestically reinforces the inherent legitimacy of these constructions of the international system through a democracy of states building these institutions over time. While at the same time, it does not want to be in a position whereby these institutions bring into account China's behaviours on certain matters. For example, when China had a ruling by the Permanent Corp of Arbitration against it on the South China Sea some years ago brought by the then government of the Philippines, the Chinese system went into overdrive to delegitimise that decision because it knew it drilled back into their legitimacy politics at home and also the legitimacy of China's South China Sea strategy abroad. But also look carefully at what the Chinese are now doing in the Human Rights Council in Geneva and more broadly in the United Nations system, including in the Security Council and seeking to strip out human rights language from key UN resolutions and to reassert instead the sovereignty of states as opposed to the sovereignty of individuals as articulated in the Human Rights Universal Declaration of 1948. So for those reasons, China would not be spending huge resources in doing that if it didn't matter, because Mm. it does form part of the legitimacy equation at home. And it's far more important, for example, what the UN says about Chinese human rights practices than what the United States says about human rights practices in China because the view in Beijing is, and by the Chinese people is, 
Well, the US would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> I mean, are there undervalued or underregarded areas, do you think, in which China and the United States and again, the wider democratic world, but especially China and the United States could be cooperating more than they are? Are there areas in which they do actually want the same thing? Absolutely. And part of the reason for writing this book, The Avoidable War, is to create the political and diplomatic space for that continued strategic cooperation to occur. You see, the guts of my argument is, one, strategic red lines uh, mutually acknowledged is the wrong term, but mutually understood around each country's position in the South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan, the Korean Peninsula, cyber and space, so that you reduce the risk of crisis, escalation, conflict and war. Second element of managed strategic competition is um, non-lethal competition in all other domains, foreign policy, economic policy, technology policy, and ideology, for example, the ideational underpinnings of the future international system, authoritarian state capitalism in China's case, or liberal democratic capitalism in the case of the democratic world. But the third element of this equation is to simultaneously create enough space for a strategic cooperation in critical areas like climate change, in critical areas like the next pandemic, given how much we screwed up the management of the last mm. one. And then thirdly, also continued global financial stability. Now, in each of these three domains, for example, there is sufficient by way of major national self-interests at stake in Beijing and Washington that it is only through common action in pursuit of these global public goods that the national interests of both sides are advanced. So these are the three areas. Uh, that's where they'd like to collaborate. But at present, in the absence of an effective strategic framework, feel constrained from fully collaborating, at least for the period ahead. Is that kind of economic cooperation potentially some sort of uh, bear trap, though? I, I guess there's a parallel with what we've learned about Western Europe's economic dependence on or cooperation with Russia in the last few decades. There's a, a line that leapt out at me when you were writing about China's relationships with its neighbours, where you describe how China economically overwhelms them. So, as you put it, foreign and security policy objections to Beijing's territorial claims are rendered politically futile and economically debilitating. Is it being too paranoid to wonder whether that's China's plan for the world entire? China's grand strategy, if I was to sum it up in a nutshell, is to turn itself into the indispensable economic partner of every country in the world, so that ultimately the sheer size of its economic footprint is such that foreign security policy reservations, as it were, fade in terms of their relative significance. And ultimately, countries, whether they're allied or non-aligned, find themselves into a position of benign compliance with China's worldview. In other words, China wins the strategic race against the United States without firing a shot, but by using their global and regional and bilateral economic leverage to achieve a similar strategic outcome. So that is the truth of what China seeks to do. Secondly, they have a reasonable prospect of success on that score if the United States continues to disappear up its own economic orifice, <laughs> to paraphrase the Australian poets, if the protectionist sentiment currently in the United States Congress prevails and the United States continues to be a protectionist rather than the free trading power that we knew in the past.
because that way the United States effectively undermines its own regional and global economic and geostrategic interests by turning itself and the NAFTA economies combined into a much less significant economic footprint when measured against China. Finally, though, the point I would make is the recommendation in my book within strategic collaboration for the US and China for the period ahead is not economic collaboration in the broad, it's specifically uh, financial market collaboration, because these two systems are enormous, and neither has an interest in jeopardizing global financial instability. Because as we saw through the global financial crisis, if that is unleashed fully, it has potentially devastating consequences of an unpredictable scope and nature, which could wreak havoc in both the United States and China. So therefore, it's the financial equivalent or the financial slash economic equivalent of climate change. In other words, whatever your geopolitical differences may be, there's enough common interest to work together on these. Well, and just as a, a final, final thought then, as, as you mentioned earlier, Australia did have a federal election last weekend. It does have a new government, which means it has a new prime minister and a new foreign minister, both jobs that you have had. What would you advise them, or perhaps, given that you were on the same side and from the same party, have you advised them about approaching China? Uh, nice try, but I would never provide advice through a program such as this or any other program publicly. Whatever counsel I might have, I would provide privately and only when asked. But I think more broadly, this is a deeply experienced new government. Anthony Albanese was deputy prime minister under me, was in my cabinet for years and years and years, occupying senior portfolios. Penny Wong is deeply internationally literate. She was climate change minister under me, now is the foreign minister. And they are also part of cabinets which took a whole series of hard decisions on uh, China strategy when we were last in office. So I think this is a competent, experienced team. The fact that they will probably not take out the megaphone every second Thursday morning and have a good blast at Beijing for the fun of it in order to, as I said, grow some more chest hair, I think is probably good in terms of stabilizing the relationship overall. But it will still remain a challenging relationship, given that Xi Jinping does not accept the status quo, that China's power continues to grow, and that his predisposition is to be more assertive in the use of that power in relation to countries the world over, including Australia. Kevin Rudd, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That was the former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. His book, The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping's China, is available now in hardback. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk and this week's Foreign Desk Explainer was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars and Callum McLean. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.